Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 317 and the return of episode 37 guest, composer, educator, percussionist, drummer, and currently a music professor at the University of Texas at Austin, Ivan Trevino. We'll get to him shortly. But first up, PASIC 2022. I'll have more to say about this next week with the preview episodes, but the Percussive Arts Society International Convention returns next week, November 9th through the 12th, in person at the Indianapolis Convention Center in downtown Indy. I look forward to seeing many of you there. In the meantime, I don't typically release a new episode in this interim week, but I managed to snag an interview with a guest I hadn't talked to in a while, and it was time to have him back on. So let's hear again from Ivan Trevino. Ivan first appeared on the show in May of 2017 on episode 37, the link to be found in the show notes. I've connected with Ivan over the years at PASIC since then, and we talked about him returning, but it was definitely time now because a lot has changed for him over the past five years. For background, Ivan Trevino is a performer and educator and is best known for being a prolific composer in and around percussion. When we talked in 2017, we got into a lot of his composing activity along with self-publishing and his upbringing. This time, we get into the professional and personal changes in his life, along with discussions of inclusion, diversity, and equity, and quite a bit of basketball and soccer talk, and much more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on September 29th and October 6th, 2022, and it begins right now. Ivan had you on five and a half years ago at this at this point, and I want to know, well, let's start with professionally, what kinds of things have changed for you since the time that we last talked? Because I believe the last time we chatted, you one of the things you were doing was working at Baylor uh, here and there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I was doing that, and I was making the drive to Waco, Texas, which uh, is about an hour and a half drive. And um, I think shortly after that, uh, I moved on from that position uh, in part just because of the challenges of traveling. And at the same time, uh, I think my wife, Amanda, um, is pregnant with our first uh, son, Oscar. So there was a lot of changes happening for us. So it was just the right time to move on. Um, but Baylor was great. Working with Todd Meehan was amazing. And so I sort of left uh, the academic space for maybe four or five years and was just focusing on composing music and publishing my music, which was even while I was at Baylor was still sort of the main thing that I was doing. Um, and it still is to a certain extent, but uh, last year, uh, Tom Burrett called me here at UT Austin and said, hey, we have a, a position opening. One of our faculty members is sort of leaving pretty suddenly. And um, I know you're here. And I know we've talked before about you getting involved in some way. So I had to think on it pretty quickly. It seemed like a great uh, opportunity to take on for a number of reasons. One is I love to teach like so much. And I didn't really have a teaching home. Like when I would travel and do residencies, I could teach a little bit. 
but um, it's not the same as having um, sort of a studio that you help grow and nurture. Um, so that was one of the big pulls for me. And also, like, I live like 10 minutes from the school, so the commute's awesome. It's a great situation. And I think uh, also I've always had sort of um, a complicated relationship with academia, um, and I've spoken out a bit about that. Um, but what made me feel good about taking on this job is Tom also understands the various problems within academia and he's sort of reshaping and restructuring his program in a number of different ways to sort of meet the moment and the people at the very top of our music school also understand that so essentially um, they're letting me be me which means that I can have flexibility with my curriculum from student to student some students are writing music some are really uh, intensely playing like marimba competition repertoire some are arranging pop tunes and playing drum set. So um, having that flexibility means a lot to me. And um, I feel like I don't necessarily have to f fit within um, a pre-existing uh, system that they're sort of letting me uh, float around and be flexible. So it's really nice. Is your position at UT Austin full-time? It is. It's a full-time position, yeah. Uh, I teach a studio uh, currently of 14 um, percussionists. So I do applied lessons, just private lessons. And um, this semester, that's all that I do. Uh, I, I don't teach any classes or I'm not involved in percussion ensemble. So it's strictly one-on-one -on -one sort of sessions. And I think that lends itself well to having sort of this flexible curriculum that I was talking about yeah. and sort of focus on uh, each student and their goals. So yes, it is a full-time position. Um, I'm here. I have a schedule set up currently that is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So Monday and Friday, I can work on sort of my composing and other activities. So that's a great setup as well. It is a lot of students, uh, but we have a big studio and that's sort of part of, of this position. Uh, it's a, this position recently got, uh, I sort of got promoted to assistant professor of practice. Mm -hmm. And the professor of practice track is sort of a professional track for people who uh, maybe chose professional routes of, uh, I don't know, sort of their journey versus maybe taking on more academic, uh, things or going, getting a doctorate, for example. Um, so yeah, uh, it's great. I, I feel lucky to be here. Tom's awesome. Very supportive. Students are great. Like it's still a little fresh hopping in, uh, and, and I hopped in October of last year. So the semester had already started. So they just sort of threw me in. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's been awesome. I really love it. As far as you know, is your position, the way that it's designated, something that you're available to get promoted through? Yes, it is. So there are a few more levels of promotion uh, within this position. So this is assistant professor of practice, and then they have an associate professor of practice, and then they have a full professor of practice. And uh, they're not quite tenure tracked. And honestly, for me, I'm, I feel fine with that. I, f I feel like uh, there's pluses and minuses to that. Um, one of the nice things is that 
Um, I don't have to deal with so much prep in terms of the tenure track and what that means and all of the additional things that come with that. I think it's a good balance for me personally, but I could see someone else in this position maybe, you know, wanting that part of it, but um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, for instance, are you being asked to do committee work? Not at the moment. And I think once, if a promotion happens, I think that might become a little bit part of the job or maybe asking me to do a little bit more. Um, But I don't think it would be on the same line and the same amount of stuff that a tenured person would do. At least that's, that's my hope and what I understand. Um, and obviously if it came to that point, I, I'm sure there would be a discussion had <laughs> about, right. about that. Um, I think it's finding a balance, uh, with everything, but currently like there is room, like I can see uh, myself growing in this position, which I think is really nice. So that's mm-hmm. sort of different than what an adjunct, I think, position would offer. Um, so I, I do feel like there's, uh, more growth if that yeah. makes sense. And some of these things can happen uh, semi-quickly depending on my own professional track. Right. So if I have a lot going on and there's a case to be made, like, oh, wow, like Ivan uh, is doing a ton of different things and bringing a lot of impact and recognition to the school, then I can on my own say, okay, I think it's time that we consider this and then um, and then we would move on from there. But uh, so there is some... I guess, ownership in this position that I feel, which is really nice. When this came to you, you said it was kind of all of a sudden, but it was almost a year ago, right? Mm -hmm. Approximately something like that. Were you more, did you happen to be more open to this opportunity at that particular time uh, versus if it had happened a couple years earlier? Yeah, I think, I think so, Pete. I think the fact that we have a family uh, at home and the fact that before this job, I was traveling a lot more and I could see how that was going to be more difficult. And at the same time, I'm not sure I would, I would have seeked out another job outside of Austin because we really have roots here. So this, yes. would, have been, this would have been the only place... Or maybe one of the other schools in the area, like Austin Community College, uh, where I I would have sort of settled down in that respect. But it makes a lot of sense in terms of having a family. It's really hard to be on the road and also maintain like parental and spousal responsibilities. Like, and I think um, in our field, it's so easy to sort of become consumed with with the job and and all the things that it entails that it's easy to let that other stuff slip away. So in part it was, it was like finding a balance and that part made total sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, so sort of the universe, uh, you know, sort of lined up in that way at a good time, I think. Um, yeah, it's definitely kept me in town more, although I am traveling, uh, coming up, but it's just not nearly as much, uh, which is nice. Yeah. Well, and, it's for sure the fact that your children are so young is another factor. It's one thing if they were teenagers or something like that. Oh, totally. You're exactly <laughs> right. Yes. And and my wife works full time as well. So like it would, it would be real. I'm not sure how we would do it if either one of us was away. 
uh, for stretches at a time. Um, and like, there are some exceptions, like I mentioned, you know, I'm traveling coming up, uh, I'm heading to back to my alma mater Eastman for about a week to do a a project out there. But I, I think I'm more, uh, sort of picky about the things that I do now, uh, because not, not because I don't feel like all of these opportunities are valuable, but I value the family time more and that's important to me. Yeah. Well, you know, and and I was thinking additionally, because of the fact that Tom is the head of the program, I think it's easier for you to kind of come in as, and know that it's not, everything's not your responsibility. You're kind of like, you can fit into what Tom already has going. It totally. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm not sure that I would be able to oversee a whole program the way that Tom is able to do it. Obviously, he has his own performing career as well, and he navigates it super well. Um, But I think the way that my sort of brain works is um, I'm not a really good multitasker. I have Mm. to like, I have a project that I'm focusing on. And then after that, I move on to the next thing. And, and I operate great under that sort of framework. Um, so running a whole program would be challenging. And I, I, I'm very lucky that Tom does it so well. And um, I'm lucky that he does all of that stuff to just sort of let me, uh, you know, do my thing here. And I don't, I don't feel too overwhelmed in this position. It, it seems like a good balance. Oh, well, th- I was going to, this can lead kind of into the next thing, but, but it sounds like when you have your composing projects, it sounds like it's kind of thing. Like if someone, if you are commissioned and someone's like, Hey, how's that going? And you're like, I literally have not started cause that's not how this goes. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, that's a good point. Um, I do have a, like a calendar composing calendar set up where I yeah. know, when certain projects might be wrapped up and when certain projects are started. Yeah. And I just try to set those expectations up front with people. Um, like if they commission me and, and we've uh, agreed on a particular project, I, you know, I, and I've even emailed this before and I've said, don't worry if you haven't heard from me in a while. It doesn't mean that I'm not thinking about the project or I'm not working on the project, but I have a system in place um, so as we get closer, you're going to hear more from me. <laughs> so I just try to set those things up front so people know. Um, but yes, it has to be compartmentalized in that way for me to, to function. Um, and I also try to do this all within the framework of work days, uh, weekdays, so mm-hmm. that I have a weekend with the kids. So I'm trying not to work during that time. Uh, so it I mean, the weekdays, especially when there's a project looming, <laughs> can feel a little pressing. But um, so far, I haven't had an issue meeting uh, most, almost all the deadlines. If, if not, I've been really close, which is good. I, I don't like to be uh, really late on commissions. I try to my best to meet them or at least be in a... a a place that is acceptable enough, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 Related to your writing over the last, we talked a lot about this, you know, the first time I, I talked to you uh, way back when, but I'm curious over the last five years or so, if 
your influences in what you take in as a musician and as a composer, it, has that influenced what you write? And uh, how so? Yeah, I think so, Pete. You know, during the pandemic, I started listening to a lot um, a lot of uh, an artist from uh, Veracruz, Mexico. Her name is Natalia Laforcade. Oh, yes. She's awesome, right? Awesome. <laughs> I know. She's so great. She just sold out Carnegie Hall, which is like incredible. I feel like as I've gotten a little bit older, I've been gravitating towards music that reflects my own roots. Yeah. Um, that's been important to me, especially as like my parents have gotten older. And I realized like my, my connection to my roots uh, might not might not always be here. And I'm trying to listen to more music that connects me to them. And um, I think that's one thing that I've really been doing lately. And I think that vibe has sort of it just sneaks into my own writing, too. Um, mm -hmm. There's a I wrote a piece uh, back around when we did our podcast called Immigrant Song. It's a marimba solo I wrote for my mom. Mm -hmm. And um, recently, uh, there's a, a school that's going to the Midwest Clinic that is, uh, they asked me to arrange that song for like a larger group. Um, and that's been so much fun because I've really like um, do dove into the sort of uh, Mexican, Latin American percussion sounds that Natalia has in a lot of her music to really just like have it be forward and present. Like as a marimba solo, there's definitely elements of of that kind of music. But once you add the percussion stuff, it like takes it directly into that genre. Yeah. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. And I think in part that's been because of Natalia's influence uh, in terms of also her embracing her roots. Like it's funny, our, our, our trajectories are sort of similar. Like she came out with the indie rock record first. Yeah. And then as she's gotten older, it's like she's come out with a lot of, uh, Mexican-inspired, Latin American-inspired albums. And I'm sort of finding some of that in my own writing as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it definitely happens. And at the same time, uh, there's a lot of music that swims in my head. Uh, so sometimes, like, my off time is, like, just it's okay not to have music happening all the time in terms of what I'm listening to. Because uh, it can get a little much. So sometimes like my listening time is like podcasting. Or sure, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, and that's that's helpful, too, just to give my brain a rest. So there's balance in all of it, I think. You said that as part of your job, you you are working with people who are composing as, mm -hmm. as, as an aspect. And I'm curious, how much time do you spend talking with them about about influences or about where where they might be coming from so you can kind of help guide so one of my big things that has helped me and i think can be helpful to other people and there's a few students of mine that i think ha this has resonated with but i always encourage them to embrace the the music and the sounds and the things that they're doing outside of our sort of academic space so, for example, one of my students, Sebastian, uh, takes a lot of influence from, like, Japanese video game music. Um, and that's a huge influence. And I think when we first started working together, 
I, I'm not sure he thought it would be acceptable to sort of use that as direct influence. Maybe he thought that lived too much outside of our space. Um, but I was like, Sebastian, this is what's going to, this is your, this will give you your own space and your own voice. If you embrace the sound, it's okay to, um, to sort of pull from all these different places. Um, and like his trajectory and what he's done since I think is awesome. And it's super like inspiring for me, uh, to see him pull from these influences and like what happens, I think, and this happens for me too, is, uh, when you're sort of incorporating influences that you enjoy and you like, then you want to do the work. Um, yeah. And that's what happens with him. He comes in every lesson. He's like, oh, yeah, I wrote, a, I wrote another thing or here's, the, you know, half a song that's done or whatever it is. But there's always progress being made because I feel like he has a point of inspiration that is meaningful to him. Um, so, yeah, we talk a lot about those influences. Some of my students are arranging, one of them is arranging uh, a Sophie tune. Uh, it's like uh, really, she, uh, Sophie, uh, they passed away, but um, Sophie did, the artist. But uh, Sophie had a huge sort of um, inspiration and impact on electronic pop music uh, in terms of Sophie's production, in terms of their own albums that they put out. So one student is just taking one of Sophie's tunes and arranging it in a percussion ensemble context. And that's been awesome. And we're learning a lot about arranging and notation and um, range and frequencies and all of the compositional and arranging things that you would think about. Um, and this student also marched blue coats. So it's possible that she'll have some sort of uh, future that is in the marching arts, which inevitably she might be arranging music. So I feel like it all sort sort of makes sense in terms of her trajectory. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, outside influence is, is huge and something that I try to um, encourage students to embrace instead of like uh, separating it. Like, oh, that's different than than what I do here. Like, I don't know. I th I think it can be uh, they can coexist. Yeah, you made me think of. Something I actually uh, something I talked about in my recital, which is I did um, I did Libra Tango, um, you know the, it's only been played six billion times. At this point. <laughs> it's gr it's a great tune. It is it is. Uh, but I, I when I told the story about how Piazzolla when Piazzolla was studying with um, Nadia Boulanger had written had he'd been he basically played Argentinian pop music. And his whole life and he wrote a tango but he didn't want to show it to Nadie Boulanger and no she's like no 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 <laughs> you're gonna this is your lane you yes this with classical style <laughs> and that's gonna be your thing it's like that's exactly the lesson you were kind of that, that's that's exactly right and that happened to me too when I was younger like slowly getting influences from like outside genres and rock music mm -hmm. um and having teachers who like embrace those sounds and encourage me to continue to pursue them, uh, allowed me to have a, a career doing this stuff, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that flexibility is super important and that plays into like curriculum too, right? Like Sebastian, the student I mentioned, he is, um, he's a performance major but we have flexibility to do some writing and to figure out a way to incorporate 
all of the different things that he's interested. We don't have to have such a rigid track. And I think ultimately he, I hope that he benefits from that in some way, you know, over these past five years, I'm curious on your end, what kinds of, in terms of what you've been writing, has there any been anything that you've written that has either because it was, you were inspired to do so or because you were commissioned and this is what they wanted, but they really forced you to stretch in ways you hadn't done before. <laughs> yeah, like I mentioned going back to Eastman, and the reason I'm going back is Mike Burritt's on like a short sabbatical leave. And he, yeah. he yeah, actually, me. Megan is going back uh, like in the next few weeks or something like that with, with her saxophone duo. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Megan and pro- and me and, and a few other people, I think like Jake Nisley and even, like even Lee Stevens, we're all coming in to sort of fill in the teaching role for MJB. And part of what I'm doing there is I wrote a wind ensemble piece for the wind ensemble and we're going to give the, the world premiere there. It's called run to the light. And, uh, I wrote it for the Eastman Centennial, so it's like their 100th anniversary. And that stretched me a lot <laughs> in terms of, I, I mean, like I've written for wins before, but not um, not win band, I've written for like win quintet. So that definitely pushed me uh, a lot to listen to more win band music, to get familiar with like the, the orchestration of things and the function of different instruments and uh yeah that pushed me a ton uh one of my colleagues here at ut austin is omar thomas yeah who's written a lot of wind band music right right uh yeah awesome omar's great and so i i like did some score studying of some of his scores and uh who else like john mackey and and dave maslanka too uh i i grew up playing and i think a lot of us did maslanka music and seeing if there were any like commonalities, not within the musical choices, but just like orchestration. And, um, and it all made sense to me. Like at the end of the day, um, there are clear, uh, there are clear choices that you can make in terms of what each instrument can represent. Um, it reminds me a lot of producing a track where you have like, uh, all of these different things happening, but there, but each thing lives in its own lane. Each thing represents its own f- frequency that it lives in and, and provides clarity for ideas. Uh, so it sort of, it, it made sense to me. Uh, I just had to sort of um, wrap my brain around all of the different choices that were possible. <laughs> um, so yeah, it pushed me for sure. Uh, and I'm excited. I still haven't heard it in person, so I'm hoping that it sounds as good as it sounds on the <laughs> computer. Uh, yeah. And then in February, we're going to do the piece here at UT Austin with Jerry Junkin conducting. So that'll be um, amazing. Just to be for specificity, what were what were some commonalities you figured out looking at all those different scores? You know, it, it was interesting. To, for example, like John Mackey's tunes, tunes or his pieces, or whatever you want to call it. Right, right, yeah, uh, yeah. The way he wrote for lower winds uh, mimicked like uh, distorted guitar power chords. Like there were tons of fifths that lined up in the trombones and in the bassoons. And like immediately I got a sense of like this, this person like listens to rock music and understands how it is constructed and put together. <laughs> that is and, very true. <laughs> right. Anything of his. <laughs> totally. And I even think he wrote like a tool inspired piece 
that was sort of uh, uh, mimicking their own their own sound world and style too. And I and I could see some of that stuff happening even in in Maslanka's music as well. And the other thing was just like um, having clarity of uh, musical choice. So like if if there's a melodic component happening, making sure that there is room for it to exist despite whatever else is happening. I think musical clarity was was the thing that I noticed the most. And it was almost as if, and, and I find this in my own percussion writing, it's like sometimes I'll write something and then it's not the thing that I wrote that... Uh, you know, that I, I think makes it uh, a good idea. It's sometimes the things that, that I take away from there that make it clear. Um, so, so clarity of intent, I think, was really huge. Not overriding. Uh, that was another thing, too. Like, not everybody has to play all of the time. That was a thing that I realized. Like, the big moments sound big and beautiful because the things that happened before it were sparse and thoughtful. Um, so that was a thing that I sort of had to just think about in a different way, but I think it makes sense. Like I even think about percussion writing in a similar way. Um, so it wasn't too bad. The the hardest thing was notating. And that's something I I think I would just, from now on, I'm just going to bite the bullet and hire someone else to like take over the notation because that was hard. And I actually got some hand issues from it. Uh, from all the computer work and shortcuts oh, and trying to put all the slur markings in and yeah everything. exactly it was like <laughs> oh my gosh it was it was more it was more that was the hardest part for me actually and I'm like recovering and my hands are much better but like that piece like definitely t- took a lot out of me <laughs> so uh so yeah so we play that uh October 19th is the world premiere at Eastman and I'm playing on the piece too and so is uh, Mike, Mike's coming out of his sabbatical leave to mm. join join me for that, and then when we play it at UT Austin, me and Tom will play it with the ensemble. It's sort of like a quasi percussion feature, but not really. Like, I don't think you need soloists. I I just think me and MJB like to play together, and mm-hmm. Tom and I as well. It's good, and and then what you can do is after you and and Mike play it together, you can show that tape to Tom and just go like, okay. <laughs> I just be like, is this, is this guy any good? You know, like <laughs> Tom, yeah, Tom, uh, he, he always, what's his running joke? He says, Oh, I'm, I'm the better looking Burt. That's what he always says. He's just joking. You know? right. I think no, he's, he's the younger he, one. <laughs> he said, uh, when, when I had him on, he's like, well, only one of us is Dr. Burt. <laughs> That's right. And then he said, he's like, the only problem though, is he knows, he knows Mike can rip off like five, just, just like cut downs in a, in like a minute. <laughs> Without a break, so <laughs> yeah, that's right. It it has been cool. Uh, like I obviously like I know both of them really well, and I know their families really well. And it's it's been awesome to see how they approach running a studio in similar ways and also in different ways, um, which I think has been great. Like, and then I also studied with John Beck, who had like his own approach. So it's just been cool to see how how different people run their programs in different ways, and they can all be done really well, you know? Um, just interesting. How much, you know, pandemic-wise, that had to, I have to imagine that had to have been really hard because of the fact that you're, so much of what you do is perform, is not only like writing, but it's, it's your work getting performed. So what, what, what did that period end up being like though? That yeah. You know, that was, it was tough. Uh, 
But at the same time, one of the things that I feel lucky about is that, uh, and I think I talked about this on our last podcast, but I, I chose to self-publish my music a long time ago. And when the pandemic happened, initially nobody was playing music, but then eventually people started to play again and we started to get together and mask. And I felt like through all of that, even when I wasn't playing, I still had like, uh, I was able to sustain myself through commission work and also through my publishing. Like that was really, and it's always been helpful for me to just have that uh, sort of avenue of income that supports what I do. So even when playing was slowing down, um, I still had like other stuff happening. So I actually like, I felt okay about it. I really felt for my peers who like rely solely on performing. That was really tough for them. Um, And certainly challenging. Um, And hopefully now we're sort of getting out and just hopefully starting to do it more and more. Um, so yeah, the self-publishing thing was, was really big. And that's something that I really try to instill in my own students too. like have ownership of your work because you never know, like if if something takes off or if, um, if a movie comes, uh, asking for a licensing deal or whatever it is that you cannot envision in this moment, you will be so happy that you hung on to that. Did, did you do anything in that time? Did you do anything that was either update or change or, or, or do anything specific to the publishing and the writing that because you had maybe you, you just had some more time to kind of like think about it or adjust some ideas? Uh, yeah. You know, the one thing that I uh, that I did was and I mentioned this earlier in t- terms of notating. I think it made me realize that I, the publishing stuff actually takes a lot of time takes a lot of time to uh, send out music, to work with distributors, to do the invoicing, to do uh, marching band licenses, like all of the various things that it means to publish. Um, And when UT approached me with their gig, uh, I knew like I couldn't do all of this stuff and I needed help. I was able to hire someone as a part-time assistant, uh, Paige DeDecker, who's an amazing percussionist mm-hmm. yeah. a, uh, from Florida and who also works for like Niefnorf and does a lot of different uh, marketing and organizational work for a number of different things. And uh, she's also a public school teacher. And she said, yeah, I could do this. I have time to help. And so that was one of the biggest changes for me was just realizing that it was like I, I couldn't do it all and, and I didn't want to take time away from family stuff to like be doing paperwork um, so uh, I bit the bullet and hired someone to help and Paige has been amazing She's and she's so much more organized than me so like it takes her half the time or even less to do some of the same tasks that it takes me like my brain just works in a very slow process sort of way. And, um, and, and hers works in a very quick way. (laughs) And so it's awesome. It's great. It saves me a lot of time and she works very efficiently. And, um, yeah, so that was a big change. And it's, I sort of realized it through the pandemic as things started picking up again, I was like, wow, like this is actually a lot of work. Um, and would just would have just been too much to handle. Plus, like writing music on top of that, right? So, 
that was a thing that uh, was helpful and has continued to be helpful. So Paige, if you're listening, thank you again. I tell her like every time you're amazing. Thank you. (laughs) She's awesome. Yeah. So Ivan, last question in terms of, you know, career rise is what's, what's kind of upcoming. I know that you've got the Eastman performance. That's, that's kind of the most soon to be upcoming, but what kinds of things are you are planned for the future? That's a great question, Pete. I think I may start dabbling in some outside um, sort of fields or genres. Uh, like I think this wind ensemble piece uh, for Eastman, uh, I'm hoping will uh, sort of just open up a space for me where I can uh, maybe write more music in that space or, or sort of get my, get my name in that space, for lack of a better word. Um, so I can see myself doing that a little bit. Um, it's fun. Like one of the things I loved about that project was um, it was just fun to have so many different options. Sometimes I, you know, some someone will get in touch and say, "Hey, Ivan, I want to commission you to do a percussion sextet uh, or some marimba stuff." But like, I feel like I've done a lot of that stuff already. So even in the percussion field, I'm always thinking about ways to just like have something about this particular piece be different or give it its own character. And I think the wind space opens up that a lot for me. So it's possible that I could be doing more of that or even string quartet work, et cetera. Yeah. I'm not really sure yet. Um, what, you know, like large scale projects, I do have some commissions coming up. Some of them are percussion based, but not necessarily only percussion. Like I'm writing a piano and percussion duo from my friend, Mark Bozeman that I'm really excited about. And um, I have a piece that I just uh, finished. And I think I mentioned this last time for Roma High School. We're going to play it at the Midwest Clinic. You know, it's like I'm touching on outside genres a lot there. And so I think I'm just going to keep exploring, if that makes sense, and uh, be open to new things. And that's the same thing I tell my students all the time. Um, Like sometimes we're hyper-focused on this one particular goal. And for example, I never thought I'd be write any wind ensemble. I didn't even think I would write music, period. Um, so uh, just being open to things that are coming in and figuring out how you can best put your own musical personality in those spaces. And I think that's what I'm hoping to do moving forward. Um, but I think teaching is actually going to be an even bigger part of that. Like I'm really making roots here and I love being here and I love having a teaching home. So I think part of the plan is to some of the brain space to focus on that. Um, and then maybe do compose, but maybe not on the scale that I've been writing on, which is really, I was looking back on some of the pieces I I wrote and I had to do a performance review for UT. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think I did like five or six commissions this calendar year. One was the win ensemble piece. One was an etude book for Juilliard. And I think I just realized like I'm, I'm maxing out and there's no way I'm going to be able to keep a steady teaching load and try to do as much of this. So I think the teaching will sort of, um, take up some of that time and I'm okay with that. I feel like, um, like I mentioned earlier, I've written a lot of music and there's, uh, I don't know. I just, maybe my brain just needs some space to rest too, you know? Yeah. That's completely understandable. Because of the of the amount of music that that you have written that you're still writing, do you are there times when you're when you write something 
you create something and then you look at you're like oh i've this is like x piece that i wrote four years ago and i'm i'm basically have taken the same idea and just like kind of yeah um i mean i think because my music lives in the same language sort of musical space you know yeah um i think it, it is that is it is easy for that to happen um and I, I think at the same time, one of the things that I think about from the onset is like that particular personality of the piece. Um, like what is going to be the thing that people remember from this particular piece? And it could be as subtle as like shared instrumentation, or it could be really theatrically based, you know, like sharing a guitar or... Uh, like an Omar's uh, piece that I wrote for Green Vibes Projects, like having um, like cell phones out in front of you and having those producing drones that you then manipulate. Like, so for me, that's the thing that I think people remember about that piece uh, is is that particular theatrical element. And I always try to think about that for each piece. And that just helps create separation in my mind too, because the impetus is not... Uh, like, oh, harmony or hook per se. It's this sort of broader idea. Um, so that's helpful. But I think that does happen. And I think it happens to a lot of songwriters too. And it's this fine balance, right? Like you want to continue to push and explore. And at the same time, like if the particular musical ideas live within your sound world, like it's, o I think it's okay to be comfortable in, in that space too. Um, you know, I think so many songwriters and composers all have their own sort of language they exist in. And I think how they travel around that is really interesting to me and something that I think a lot about, too. So, yeah, it definitely does happen. Yeah. You know, one of the things you made me think about with the wind ensemble piece is that that genre is it's interesting because there are way more bands you know, then they're like, or percussion programs or all that stuff. But there's also an enormous amount of band lit, like, like a lot. Like we think percussion has a lot of lit. It's like, you, we're not even in the same realm here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. You're totally right about that. It's a whole, it's a whole new space. You know, I do think, and uh, I, I see this with Jerry Junkin at UT and my colleague, Ryan Kelly, like, their programming is always a mix of old and new, which I really love a lot. And I think, you know, even 20 years ago or 10 years ago, a lot of the repertoire was always centered around older traditional works. Yep. And I really feel like it's moving forward. So like, from my perspective, I feel like this is a great time to be writing for wins. Like if I was writing for it them 30 years ago <laughs> it might be a little trickier to make a space but i feel like um people are embracing sort of new composers and outside genres and um yeah so i think there is a space for that but yes it is definitely crowded and the percussion field is getting crowded too right yeah. like everyone's composing music and some people are self-publishing and like um and which is awesome um so i think what what i love is that more and more people are comfortable writing music yeah. you know i think that's awesome um and that was certainly i think that comfort level was certainly hard for me to feel at the onset of my composing like should i be writing in this way it's like 
is this too poppy? Is this too indie? But um, at the end of the day, it was like just getting it out of my head and onto paper made me feel better and uh, sort of worked out, you know? Cool. Well, um, I'm going to do kind of an adjusted version of the random ass questions since okay. we did it, did a full version the last time. Um, I'm going to, I want to start kind of like go, go in on this point. You know, you made this point about is related to composition, but that a lot of um, in bands, I know I've seen this with my own uh, colleagues that they're looking at uh, more composers, uh, more younger composers, more living composers, and in particular, more composers who are non-white or, or not white men, basically, as so much of that genre is. Um, and so I kind of am curious about your own thoughts on, on some of that, but also related to you know, some of the issues that have, have become more prevalent since, since the pandemic and since the summer of 2020. I know, relatedly, you, you posted a video kind of around when um, a lot of the George Floyd um, items came up about your own experiences Definitely like what I felt was uh, racially profiled, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. It's interesting, like even taking a step back, when I got to college, for example, at Eastman, I very much had like a non-Western classical background. Like I knew some of that stuff, but I also... Um, grew up playing some of the cl- you mean some of the classical background you some of that yeah some of it uh yeah. i was pretty late like i didn't really start classical percussion to my junior year of high school but i had this whole huge experience of playing in church and playing gospel music and tejano music and and country gospel music in south texas um, where i just played by ear and i just learned rap and tunes and played in my dad's band right when i started classical percussion and and even thinking back on it now, I never really had like people uh, who looked like me or of my cultural background that uh, I really knew about or looked up to, right? Like most of the people I looked up to, like you said, were uh, white men. You know, at the time, I never really thought about like that, that not being like representative of our broader culture. Uh, I just thought that's it was normal. Like I just thought, Oh, this is sort of a white space. And this is, these are the people that I have to look up to now that I've become uh, more well known as a composer and a performer. um, Like I want people who are maybe like me to uh, understand like that, that it is possible. There is a space and that space is getting bigger. Like it's narrow, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh it's it's starting to widen a little bit. And I had a, a conversation with Tom Burrett, my colleague, and one of the prompts in, in my performance review was about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And like the very first thing that I said, it was like Mexican-American like starts my bio because I believe representation matters. I think that's why I'm s- sort of a little bit outspoken on these things. I also feel like it's hard for... Like some people don't want to speak out too much because they're afraid to say the wrong thing. There's this other side of the coin where like if somebody is trying to do better, but maybe they're not doing good enough yet, like it's easy for them to get like hounded online. And like, that's not, that's not really helpful either. Like I think a lot of those people want to try to get better and they're just a little, you know, slow and trying to catch up and all of this stuff. So 
uh, it is like a balance, I think. Um, but I've, I have spoken out a lot about that, even about like programming, uh, in terms of concerts and summer festivals where like the whole roster is like mainly, um, you know, white, uh, men, for example, or even like the composers played. Um, and I always try to speak out about that stuff. And, and I'm not trying to like, sometimes it's in private. It's not like I'm calling people out online, but yeah. it's just sending them a message. And, or even if somebody asks me to do something, uh, like, Hey, we're putting together this huge thing. And then like the roster has like, you know, uh, 12 men and one or two women. It's like, sometimes I'll say, well, maybe we should, can you re-examine that <laughs> a little yeah. bit before I hop on? Like, right. cause I feel like maybe someone in a position like mine or somebody who has some sort of like, I don't know, I don't want to say pool, but like who, who maybe has just a, a, I don't know, like a perspective that maybe other people aren't thinking of can help push them along too. Um, So I have spoken out in those ways and uh, you know, I think it's hard too because that kind of work can get exhausting. You know, it's not, um, and, and, you know, some people say it's not the burden to do this stuff is not always on people of color, et cetera. So like, there's like a balance there too, but um, it's something that I think is slowly getting better. Like Eastman, for example, just hired a new DEI uh, dean and uh, she just wrote this uh, beautiful article about her background in gospel music and how like Western, Western classical institutions like sort of are at this crossroads where like we either start to open up a, their space to not only people of color, but like specifically music of color, right? Like yeah. things that, um, things that encompass uh, diversity within the genre itself. Right. Uh, or, think, you know, like non classical based degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And and that's great. And and like, sure, maybe those all, things could all coexist, right? Because there's one side of the coin where people say, oh, we should be teaching like pop music or hip hop music. And that's totally true. But like, you also have to think about who teaches those. Like, I don't right. want the theory professor who's been at the conservatory for 30 years, all of a sudden, like trying to learn about these genres and then educate people on them. Like we yeah. need we need people who are competent to teach those things. Right. Um, and that, you know, then that requires more funds and all of these things. And that's the whole balancing thing of academia, right? It's like where to put money and where does money come from, et cetera. But yes, that's exactly right. New degrees, uh, uh, or even within the classical perspective, just having classes that encompass this broader scope so that, maybe when um, students graduate with the classical degree, they still have just a little bit of a know-how in these outside genres, which can only be helpful, right? Like there's not only so many orchestra jobs and there's not even enough orchestra jobs for the, for my studio here (laughs) at UT. So like, I'm hoping that we can broaden that a little bit. Um, And really quick, the other thing I want to say is at UT, we have a Bachelor of Arts in addition to a Bachelor of Music and and then a music education degree as well. But the Bachelor of Arts is really open. So it's not necessarily rooted in that traditional classical, uh, you know, path. And I think that's really good for students 
who like that stuff, but like are tinkers and explorers and creative in a different way. Um, and that allows for flexible curriculum too, and all of this stuff. So that's, that feels good. And I'm hoping, uh, that that sort of model can be thought about or embraced in more places. And in some places it is already, but, um, that's certainly helpful here. That last point about the BA, we have a similar system here at Mizzou and the BAs tend to be double majors and their other major is like science or engineer. Like it's usually not even an, a liberal arts or a, um, a fine arts other curriculum. It's usually something completely different. And, you know, that it's really cool because those students tend to be just have a different full experience um, and are not kind of, as you said, they're not boiled down to this small, this one specific idea of what a music major can be. Totally. Yes, that's exactly right. And I love that. Um, yeah. And I feel like, honestly, it, it might be students like that who have these off the beaten path sort of uh, ideas or experiences or goals that uh, may very well end up making a space for themselves in this in this music sort of business, you know? Whereas the person who's like hyper-focused on like the orchestral track, they may get there and I hope they do, uh, but it's very crowded and hard, you know? It's just, it's different. So I think if I were a student today, I would very much love that. That BA track I feel like was made for someone like me mm-hmm. who who wants to explore and, and tinker, et cetera. You know, I think that would be amazing. Uh, although my education was obviously awesome too. And I had teachers who were flexible with me, um, but it's not always the case, right? I was writing, I'm, I might put out a blog post about, it's like the eight year anniversary of, of the blog post, my pretend music school. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about like my not so pretend music school here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the things, um, that I was uh, uh, thinking about is sort of tailored or flexible curriculum for students. Like a student comes in um, talking about a project or an, or an idea, trying to find some uh, semblance of musical enrichment and musical improvement through the lens of sort of their interests, right? Um, and then the other side of that is like, that's kind of exhausting work. Like it's hard to have one student come in and do one thing and then another do completely different and, and, and different. And that's like the balancing act that, that I have to find here too. Um, but I think it is easier if everybody's like on the straight and narrow, not that the traditional curriculum is easier or that teaching is easy in general, but it does make it smoother if everybody's doing similar, similar stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's a whole thing. And I don't even know if, if I'm going to do that or not. I, I, I Part of me is like, uh, will I keep my job after I post this? <laughs> right. So we'll see. We'll yeah. see. I think I'll probably post it though. I feel like it's just yeah, yeah. gonna be what it is. Right. You just you you change words. It's you say like University of uh, Lexus <laughs> at Justin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no relation. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Let's get to other questions. Uh, let's talk um, World Cup. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. World Cup and in Qatar. Qatar, Qatar, right? In November because, you know, it's soccer stupid, basically. <laughs> I know. Do you yeah. think any players 
I can't. Do you think any players will pull out, or do you think it's just like everybody's like? Do you think they're in the, a position where they can't do that because of the pushback they would get from their own sort of country soccer fans, or because I feel like some of the human rights stuff in Qatar is really pretty drastic, right? Yeah, I um, mean everything they did to build those stadiums was involved basically South Asian illegal labor. <laughs> Right. That's not a secret either. I mean, this has been pretty well documented by many Western journalists. Yeah. So I feel like some players might take a stand here. And that's going to be interesting, too, because then that's at the intersection of like the country's passion for this sport. Some of them, it's like the only sport they have to really live for. Right. Versus these sort of really obviously important human rights things. Uh yeah. So I'm like, I'm interested to see what happens there. Um, but I think uh, in terms of the soccer, yeah, yeah, Team USA is looking pretty good, right? I hope so. I mean, it's, there's such a, if they're so young, I mean, this is the thing, like there's nobody on this team that has any, any World Cup experience basically, which is very unusual. I think I was kind of like the fact that after blowing it the last time and not even making it, that they just were like, we're just going, we're just, if you were a part of the team, sorry, like, <laughs> right. You're done. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time. Well, maybe, um, maybe they're so young that they don't know, know any better. Right. right. Uh, sometimes there's that vibe. I actually saw them play in Austin, uh, Pete, the, they played, um, Oh, I forget the team. Uh, it was a small, um, small African country, and uh, against the Team USA men's team. And they, we have a new soccer stadium here in mm-hmm. Austin uh, called Q2 because we have an MLS team now. Yeah, yeah. So I got to see the team play, and, and it was really fun. Uh, they won by a really large amount, but they looked good. Um, yeah. They looked fresh and, and spunky. and um, yeah. So, yeah, I think the chances are good. I think Mexico will probably always be sort of in the, you know, always be there and probably not advance like always like <laughs> you you always make it to the knockout rounds i know and then I know. usually that's then, it <laughs> that's it i know and it's it's like always uh yeah it's like the the soccer passion in mexico is so strong yeah and um i just feel like in the world cup we never and sometimes that has to do with the U, a team usa like they, i think they knocked us out way back in 98 or 2002 yeah 2000 i remember that game because it was, it was a big oh deal. my gosh yeah, yeah. I, I do too and i always have this mixed thing about which te- team to root for uh sure. it, i always lean mexico because that's yes. sort of where uh my my love for soccer started doing world cup like 94 which i think was in atlanta uh it was not... yeah it was all over the u.s that's yeah. right that's right you're right and um, yes, and I remember being in Mexico that summer and like all of a sudden, like I realized how huge soccer was and it, it was just cool to be a part of that. Like we would watch every game and everybody would get dressed up and we would like just be cooking out and everybody would be yelling at this tiny TV <laughs> and it was awesome. And yeah. so that's where I, so my, yeah, the, my passion always leans that way, but Team USA is awesome and I root for them too. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, it was a really kind of a fascinating window in the qualifying because, um, like, all of a sudden Canada was really good, it uh-huh. kind of seemingly out of nowhere. And then I was so I was like, I, it was interesting because, you know, 
obviously cheering for the U.S., I really wanted – I thought of all the times that we had played at as at Azteca for a game that mattered. I was like, <laughs> "This is literally our best chance," because right. I felt because we had caught caught you caught you all on a window where your team wasn't playing all that well, and and we had chances and we blew them. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, at least on, on the on the United States side, at least I was like, okay, we got the tie, but nobody scored, so that that was like that was a down anyway. Yes. Um you know it's interesting like USA obviously has similar letdowns in yes. this space too, <laughs> right? True. It's just like neither team. So I don't know what that means for yeah. me because both of the teams that I root for always find a way. Um I guess yeah, I don't know. This is what it feels like to be uh I don't know, name whatever team you want. Um, but there's definitely teams that just never can get over the hump. What is it like Detroit Lions? No, they've they've been really bad for a long time. I yeah, think, yeah. Right? Yeah. They're they're not that bad, our teams. But anyway, yeah. um I, w- I was also watching um baseball playoffs because my yeah. father in law is a huge Cardinals fan and he was Ooh. so heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, he thought like this season would sort of have a magical end because it was pretty magical all around, right? Um, so yeah, I've been keeping up with a ton of sports stuff, uh, World Cup included, and, and the playoffs here too. Yeah, but but then of course I have to ask. I was I said uh, when I talked to you last last time, I was like, this will be a shorter conversation, I think. But you know, this is also when we go Spurs talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think. So there's Wen Wenbayama, right, Victor? Yeah, yeah. Who's been on the Spurs radar for a long time? Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually plays for Tony Parker's team in France. Mm. So there's like this, there's a Spurs connection, yeah. and I think we've sort of been planning our sort of cycle around Victor. <laughs> I'm serious. Cycle. I like yes. this cycle. That's a nice <laughs> phrase for that. It's a nice phrase for tanking, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've been planning this, I think for at least a couple years and yeah, yeah. or a few years. Cause Victor's uh, like, he's been making waves in Europe for a long time. And yeah. And he's still only 18. Only 18. Wow. I yeah. mean, he's amazing. I, yeah. Did you see him play his, his couple games in Vegas? I, I I've watched clips of him. I, I didn't get the chance to see yeah. him, but apparently I heard it, it was like everything you oh you yeah can imagine. I mean, it's and crazy. more. He's seven <laughs> four. He dribbles like you know, like a like a guard. He's got a three point yeah. shot. He's in the paint. He's blocking shots. It's like he's all of these different players put together. Uh, yeah, it's just if he could stay healthy, right? Because he's so right. tall, and sometimes yeah. those those guys tend to get injured, but. Yeah, so so that's I think that's uh, that's what our season is going to be this year. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure because we're playing. I don't think we have a player over 26 playing in the starting lineup or on the yeah. bench. Like it's all young guys. It's all rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what it is, and yeah. I think everybody's probably okay with that. Like we've been in contention for so long. Um, I feel like having an off year. Uh, I mean, we've had a couple off years the last couple, yeah. but at least we've been in the hunt. Uh, but this one's going to be different. I think it's going to be. <laughs> I'm not used to this, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I what, mean, we had a we had a 20 year playoff run, right? I know it was crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I I guess the it's the tide is turning. So we'll see what happens. You got five titles out of it, like you know. I know. I feel like we could have a couple more in there too. I know. That's what's wild. I know. We could. We really like in 06, uh, we were playing Dallas in yeah. the Western Conference Finals. 
Manu tries to block a Dirk dunk with like a few, like a few seconds left. Yeah. Dirk hits the free throws. They go up. They end up beating us in that time. series, and then yeah. they go on to win, right? Uh, or what, they lose no. to the the Heat, but yeah. no, that right. You're right. That was uh, who was uh, yes. So who played the Heat in that finals? I forget. Mav, the Mavs. They oh, lost. they and that's right. That's what yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like we probably could have beaten that Heat team. Yeah. And then obviously 2013. That's just. Yeah. I don't. Whenever it's that anniversary, I stay off of the yeah. internet because <laughs> the Ray Allen shot. Yeah. yeah, but you're like, no. Then show the 2014 footage when we when we crushed them. That's right. I yeah. agree. And uh, <laughs> and there's this awesome dunk that Manu had on Chris Bosh in 2014. Yeah. He dunked right over him with his bald spot. Yeah. It was just like awesome. <laughs> I, I, I was so excited to see that. So when when like Drew Tucker's a huge Miami Heat fan, he'll text yeah. me the. Ray Allen thing. I always send him the Manu dunk right back, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What did you think about uh, Becky Hammond getting scooped up by the Aces, clearly making the case that she's an awesome coach, like right off the bat? Oh, my gosh. She is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I think she could have had a job, a head coaching job in the NBA, and she might still have one. Uh, and I was bummed that I thought I really thought she would be the Spurs coach and maybe she will who knows maybe Pop will coach one more year maybe she'll coach one more year in the WNBA and come over but she's an outstanding coach I just heard an interview with her on Lebetard mm-hmm. and she's like super uh like uh hyper f- focused like type A like uh just like uh what you would want in somebody running a program and like all of her stuff. She was being asked a lot about the differences between men and women uh, and coaching either one. And she was like, look, the X's and O's are exactly the same. She's like the other stuff. Sure. It's a little different. Like maybe the guys don't listen as well, but (laughs) like she was like, it's really similar. And um, she talked a lot about continuing to carve that path. And I think it's going to happen. And she's definitely the one who's going to be the first, like, you know, woman head coach, right? I, I, I think that's what's going to happen. I, I can't yeah. imagine it being someone else, uh, given what she's done for, you know, for women in that in those roles and and like how she just won a title in her first year. Yeah, yeah, it's like amazing. Yeah, she's great, and she's been great for the city of San Antonio. Like, yeah, uh, she's awesome. Uh, love Coach Becky. Yeah. The only person that uh, that came to mind that that I think if if someone were to make this hire, I think it would be pretty great is Dawn Staley oh. at South Carolina. Um, even though she doesn't have NBA coaching experience, but she's the best college coach in the women's college. Yeah, basketball. no, you're totally right. Um, yeah. yeah i i think um, I think the I think the guys are ready for it too. Yeah, like Becky was saying, like she she couldn't count how many times during the year she would just get these random messages from like LeBron or Chris Paul or just like, so glad you're, you're here, you're coaching and like just showing support, you know? Um, I think we've moved past like this and unless like you're Draymond Green or something like move past the super like machismo like way of going about basketball. I think it's become more about the X's and O's and less about like this tough guy sort of mentality, you know? Um, yeah. And that's good. I feel like that's awesome. Uh, that's like that. That's the kind of basketball I want to watch too. It's like I love, and, and the Spurs have always sort of played that way. I think you know they've always been like team oriented. But 
anyway, yeah, I think I, I hope that it happens sooner than later. And I was so happy for her. Yeah. Uh, too. It's like awesome. Yeah. I was, uh, I, one of the things that they, 60 minutes did a profile on, um, Sue Bird recently. Oh yeah. And it was really good. And one of the things that they, they talked about was, was this point about, you know, what the like men's game versus women's game and all a lot of stuff. And one of the things that they mentioned was that you, they're like, you know, who are the biggest fans of the WNBA, the NBA players. Uh huh. They like love the WNBA, <laughs> constantly talking about it. Yeah, I yes, that's exactly right. Um, uh, you know, because like sometimes in the NBA, you have these players that are jumping out of the gym, right? And they're right, yeah. just like they're defying the X's and O's, so to speak. But uh, in the WNBA, like you obviously have super athletic people, but like at the same time, the game relies so heavily on strategy. And right. it's the same with the, uh, that's why I love women's soccer so much too. Mm. And our team is so amazing too. Right. Yeah. Uh, but like it relies so heavily on strategy too. And, and that's like awesome. I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, yeah. WNBA is awesome, man. Uh, we also have uh, this uh, to go back to the Spurs. Uh, yeah. They have a few games in Austin this year. There's oh, this, nice. there's this like small, like thing that's percolating that some people think the team will relocate to Austin, which I hope that they never do because that's San Antonio's team. But I do love that occasionally they're having games in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, on, it's on my radar to get there, even if we're tanking, like <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. That's what, you know, it's funny. That's what I always love about, um, because there's the closest, uh, NBA team to m- where I am is actually Indy. It's like five and a half hours away. So every time I'm at PASIC, I'm always like, what are, what's going on at the Pacers? Like, is and, and the last like two or three years I've been in Indy that Saturday night, I've gone to the, um, I've gone to the NBA game. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. like, I finally have a chance to go see some <laughs> NBA basketball. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I've been there a few times too, actually. Yeah. yeah I might've skipped one of the, uh, one of the concerts to go do that. No, no. What's cool is that the, because that concert's earlier now. It's like oh, Sunday. Yeah. It's late afternoon, kind of. That I catch sense. like the first forty-five minutes of the concert, and then I then I go. Oh, oh that's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah. never mind. I have never skipped an evening concert <laughs> to go see basketball. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. All right, a couple uh, more questions. Um, yeah, go for it. And I, this is now we're just going to get into silly stuff. But I am curious because you're. And, and this is going to be weird because when this actually airs, it's going to be after the fact that you were at Eastman. But when you go back to Rochester, is there a place that you're like, I cannot wait to eat? Absolutely. Okay. Um, yes. Th- there's a place called Good Luck. It's on Anderson Street, I think. And it's where me and my wife, Amanda, got mar- uh, got engaged. So it's special for that reason. And we would go all of the time and um, they have these, the, all of the food there is great, but what it's kind of restaurant like, it's, it? it's quasi like new American mm-hmm. style. So they have like uh they have this huge burger that they split in four pieces. And like one of those quarters is enough for like a whole meal, you know, yeah, and yeah. then you get fries and then they have like these like other things, like they have a, uh, red lentils, like red chickpeas that are sort of uh, cooked in this like uh, curry broth that are just mm-hmm. absolutely delicious. And I remember being there in Rochester one time. I'm friends with the 
the owners that own that place. And I was in there once Amanda was in Austin and they were asking about her. And I said, man, I'd love to take back some chickpeas. I wish I could just like joking, you know? And like at the end of my meal, Chuck comes over with this frozen bag of chickpeas. He said, look, we put, we put all the sauce in. All you have to do is like put this, uh, you know, in the, in the oven or whatever it was, I forget. So I got to take her some chickpeas, uh, and it made her so happy. <laughs> Lentils and chickpeas. That's just like a combo. Um, yeah. so anyway, so that place is awesome. They make great cocktails as well. Um, and what's really funny in Austin, one of our favorite places to eat is called Suerte which means luck. So it's like we always have this funny sort of thing about our, our lucky spots in either town. And Amanda's joining me for that trip too. So I'm probably going to go on my own or maybe with uh, MJB. Yeah. And then I'm going to go again with uh, Mandy when she flies up. So that's it. And then for coffee, there's a place called Joe Bean, uh, which sort of introduced me to like third wave coffee uh sort of upped my coffee game entirely and now i'm like a now i'm just a coffee head if i wasn't doing music i would i would try to be involved in some way in the coffee uh world but joe bean like introduced me to this whole new way of thinking about coffee and um so i'm sure i'll go back there just to just to pay gratitude (laughs) to them and have a good cup of coffee yeah. Well, and also because you're you're at UT Austin, you got to up your game to just get near Tom Burritt's coffee game. <laughs> no, m- mine's way better. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I always tease him about that. Yeah. yeah. No, we've actually there's a place that we've been to uh, here. It's a little bitty food trailer. Yeah. A coffee trailer called called Desnudo, which means nude or naked in Spanish. Yeah. And um, Desnudo is awesome because they work directly with like uh, Colombian farmers. There's two brothers, Juan and Sergio. They travel to Colombia from time to time. They work with the farmers. They're trying to up the farmers game, like teach them about these new uh, farming methods, etc. And, and then they come to Austin. They roast the beans themselves. They have a roastery. And then they come to their food trailer and they, they're open six days a week there. So six days there, the seventh day they're roasting. Then they're traveling to, to Colombia from time to time. But it's all single estate coffee. So it's not mm-hmm. even single origin. It like comes from the same farm. Uh, so Tom and I have been there a few times. Uh, and, and we've seen students, like students here is talking about it. And then I'll randomly see some of them there. So we're just trying to keep those guys in business and growing, you know. Um, so, yeah. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. What is your, I don't know that I asked you this. No, I definitely, cause I didn't have the question yet. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh my gosh. I don't karaoke. Like that's one of the things that does not like compute. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I love music and I feel like I should love karaoke, but every time I go, I get like this weird, uncomfortable feeling and I don't know what it is. Um, so I don't really have one, but if I did have a song, it'd probably be like, I don't know. Uh, I, probably sing a Selena song, you mm-hmm. know, or it would be like a, maybe like a old green day song, like basket case, or that's, yeah. that's always a fun one. Right. Of course. Uh, and I feel like I could get that Billy Joe, Billy Joe voice. I used to sing like that when I was younger. <laughs> nice. I feel like I could get it back. So maybe it would be that just yeah, for yeah. a laugh. So people could hear my emo punk rock voice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't go a lot. I, I went once in, uh, in 
in South Korea where it's like a huge thing. And in the Philippines too, I remember yeah. going, and it was, there was like, you would go into this huge space and there would be like all of these rooms and each one would be filled with people having their own karaoke parties. Like it's definitely part of the, the culture in some of those places, but um, it's nothing that I seek to do regularly. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Fair enough. I didn't know if uh, I was like, is it is all the small things by Blink One Eighty Two one of them for you? <laughs> no, not. I can't do the Tom. I think Tom Delonge sings that song. Yeah, and he's got this raspy, higher voice that I can't do. But I yeah. think Billy Joe's is a little better for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, Ivan, last question. Same last question that I asked previous time, which is what one piece of art could be anything, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. So this is a small one, uh, but it has been fun to listen to. And I think it's been interesting to get creative perspective from other creators. Uh, and this is probably a podcast that a lot of people know. Um, and it's one that Natalia Laforcade, who I mentioned to you last yeah. time we talked, uh, did a small episode on. It's called Song Exploder, right? Uh, and it's just creators sort of talking about how they put their songs together, the history behind some of these things, um, the history behind like the various hooks and riffs and how those things all fit together with other parts of the song. Like, that's just interesting to me. Uh for a variety of reasons, but like sometimes I have my process and just to hear other people talk about theirs and sometimes how different that can be from mine is always like enlightening. And sometimes it gets me to think about things a little bit differently. Um, so that's a small one. Like it hasn't like profoundly changed my life or anything, but it's just been fun to listen to other artists, especially from other genres too. Right. Uh, I don't know if you know that podcast. Have you listened to that? Uh, I've heard segments. I haven't, I haven't listened oh, to yeah. that, but I've heard, uh, good, I've heard good things about yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. Natalia has one. Um, my my uncle, Will, uh, who is just recovering from some health stuff, uh, he's a huge music fan, not a musician, but he's like of, the, of an older generation, uh, and they have a cheap trick. Uh, song that they sort of break down. I sent it to him. Uh, so their genres spanned like a across all sort of uh, time periods. Uh, I think Steve Reich has one about different trains. I think uh, Halsey has one. And Natalia's is so great. And there's actually a Netflix uh, like documentary called Song Exploder 2 where like they actually interview the musicians. And Natalia is one of the video ones too. Mm. Totally worth watching. Uh so yeah, that that particular thing has been really cool for me to just sort of dive into when I'm doing the dishes or, you know, the kids are taking a nap and I have a moment, <laughs> which doesn't happen a lot. But uh, yeah, so maybe that one uh, is something worth checking out. Ivan, we're done. Pete, you're awesome. Thanks so much. You're a great yeah. interviewer, Pete. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you, you your voice, I might have said this to you last time, but your voice reminds me a hair of Adnan Burke. At, at, you know Adnan he's um he used to be an ESPN commentator oh yeah and then he does cinephile and he does all sorts of stuff uh but like there's a quality to your voice that reminds me of him and I love him he's awesome uh so that's a compliment uh thank you yes absolutely I appreciate it yeah this so, was fun 
Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad that glad we we, we got back together into this yes. again. It was time. So great to check back in with Ivan. I hope that things went well for him at Eastman, and I look forward to seeing what the future holds for him and his family. Best of luck, Ivan, in particular to get that draft pick for the Spurs. This week's rave is the 2022 film Tar, starring Kate Blanchett, Nina Haas, and Mark Strong, and written and directed by Todd Field, now showing in theaters. It was all pretty funny when I was made aware of the trailer for this movie, and my wife and friends all essentially said, wow, this looks intense and bonkers. Yes and yes. The tar in question, and yes, if you've seen the font for the ad, it includes the accent mark, which has no bearing on the actual pronunciation, is Lydia Tar, played well and convincingly by Kate Blanchett. Blanchett plays... Lydia Tarr, an orchestral conductor at the top of her game and at the top of the world, directing orchestras all over, having a teaching appointment at Juilliard, articles written about her, profiles, she's just written an autobiography, and she's a former protege of Leonard Bernstein, and is about to finish recording all nine of Gustav Mahler's symphonies. She's married to her longtime partner, played by Nina Haas, herself a concertmaster at one of the orchestras Blanchett's character conducts at, and is advising and friends with Mark Strong, who's playing a longtime conductor in his own right. When the movie begins, Blanchett's at the top of her game, and over the next two and a half hours of movie time, it's her downfall. So there's a lot to talk about here. For one, the runtime, which is over two and a half hours, is long, but completely irrelevant the movie moves at a very quick pace and honestly could have been a lot longer. So they left a lot out Two, the performance of strong is decent, but Hoss is really good in her role. She both looked the part, played the instrument well, and all orchestral musicians seem to be current and regular players on all of their instruments. Three, the reality of the classical world was mostly captured. There's some items about blind auditions and folks wearing high heels during them, master classes that could go off the rails, which I've been to some of those, the pickiness of conductors, the tiring nature of playing, the differences from one professional player to another, the importance of scores and score reading, those that were specifically marked, all that was there. And it was also clear how insular this world is and how Tar's importance is really specific to a singular group of people and not necessarily a very large audience. Four, Blanchett's conducting was, you know, not bad. There were some gestures and items she was doing that definitely seemed strange, but her command of the podium and musical content were pretty strong. And five, Blanchett was honestly incredible. I'm really not sure what other actor could have pulled this off as well. Because she not only had to master and explain music as well as she did, but she also needed to be able to speak multiple languages fluently and do so in the service of directing music rehearsal, which is really hard to do. 
Kate Blanchett's already won two Oscars, and she will be nominated, and I think she might be a shoe-in to win her third at this point. Because she's really good, and the movie is really good. If you can, check out Tar, and enjoy. Or be frightened and freaked out. Both could happen. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part one of the PASIC preview episodes. Until then.